0: To lead us into Exodus. Um, The the first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch, uh, and each one, starting with Exodus, starts uh, in the Hebrew uh, with the word and, essentially. So it's and the names, and then Leviticus does the same thing as well as numbers, and it continues, uh, showing that uh, it is essentially one large uh, work, one large book known as the Pentateuch, sometimes known as the Torah, uh, and it should be read in that way. So we started with Genesis Uh, To help us uh, lead into Exodus, we're going to reference back uh, multiple times this morning and just as we go along. Uh, Before we get there, I want to go ahead and pray for us as well. I know we just prayed, but I want to pray for us one more time for the Lord's help uh, as we uh, dive into the Word. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this morning and this time that we are able to come together as a church to worship you. Father, I pray that you would be worshipped this morning by all of us, by all of our hearts and our minds. Um, that you would be glorified in this time. Lord, help us to see and understand uh, Exodus uh, as we read and finish chapter 1. I pray, Lord, that you will make that known to us, uh, that you will make it clear, uh, and that you will apply these truths uh, to our hearts and minds and our lives uh, as we go out from here. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read it here in a moment, uh, but as we continue to get ready to do that, I'm going to try to get there myself. There we go. Um, we left off last week seeing that God fulfilled the promises, right? That in Genesis 1, there was a the creation mandate to go therefore, or not go therefore, Matthew 28. That happened too. That was good. But uh, in Genesis 1, they had uh, the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we, we left off last week uh, in verse 7, where it said, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. It was, land, it was filled with the people. And so we're continuing there in, um, in verse 8. Um, but the big idea this morning in this text is that we are all in need of redemption, that we were all once enslaved to sin, and that we are, we're all once in need of redemption if, we, if we're not already saved by the blood of Christ and So as we, um, again, as a way of introduction, um, some of you may not know, some of you already do know, so my grandpa found out Thursday, he was taken to the hospital, um, he's been put on hospice care, so I was in Dalton the last uh, two days, I'll be going back after this, um, he's on daily care, so it's not looking like, um, you know, he's going to live much longer. So I say that uh, to say that when you're, you know, when you're sitting there and, and taking care of somebody you, you really love and care about. Um, sorry I'm trying to get through this you, you, you have a time right that you have to reflect on, on death right that, that death is coming uh, for the uh, wages of sin is death uh, which brings about a lot of questions right when we reflect on death when we re- reflect on loss of life in that way uh, you tend to think right and so it, it's, a, it's a heavy reminder that we need redemption right that we need, the, we need the blood of the lamb that when sin entered into the world in Genesis 3 death came with it right death came into the world as well um, and that while those of us who are in Christ, right, we're still going to die in the body. I don't know, is there something going on with the, to call this out? This is, anyway, it, sorry, I'm getting really distracted. But as we sit at the, at the head of the bed there and see um, your loved one passing away, you really think about those things, right? And we think about our need for a savior. We think about our need for the lamb in that regard. So now Israel, what we're going to see here is that they were enslaved in uh, multiple ways. They were enslaved heavily, they were persecuted heavily, and they were murdered uh, in um, droves. And so that's what we're going to see. So let's pick it up in verse 8 and pick it up there and continue through the end of the chapter. It says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and... If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's a pretty heavy text. There's, there's a, lot, a lot going on there. And that's, again, the reminder that we were all once enslaved to sin and in need of a Savior. So as, uh, for those of you who like structure and want to know kind of the structure of what's uh, happening uh, for the remainder of this sermon, I have one question for us one reminder, and one exhortation. So that's going to be the structure if you want to write that down or just have it in your head. So one question, one reminder, one exhortation. We'll take them one by one in that order. The first one, the first, the question is, why do we need redemption, right? It's just kind of a maybe an obvious question, but why do we need redemption? Well, our enslavement to sin is total, pervasive, and deadly. Right? we good? Our enslavement to sin is total, pervasive, and deadly. And we're going to see that here in a moment. Look back with me at verse 8 in the text. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, notice right here at the beginning, there's this new pharaoh in charge. Uh, he doesn't know Joseph. Now, whether that's out of uh, willful ignorance, or whether that's just he just doesn't know. Uh, we're not really sure, but regardless, he is not um, listening to and abiding by the, um, the agreement that was taken, that was made together with Joseph uh, back in the day, uh, many years ago. He's just dis- disregarding that, and he's going to do his own thing. And so he, starting out, right out of the gate... He is he's starting to enslave them, right? There, there's a sense of fear that's, that's coming into Pharaoh's heart. There's this fear that Israel is going to continue to grow because, again, we left off last week, right, that they were growing, they are becoming exceedingly strong, they're multiplying rapidly, and they're growing into this great nation. So the fear comes in for him because... He has essentially total power over Egypt. He has total power over all things in that region. He can do just about whatever he wants to some degree. And so he sees this as a threat, right? The sense of fear comes in in his heart, and so he starts off with, okay, well, let's just start dealing shrewdly with them lest they multiply and they take us over and outnumber us and uh, destroy us. So out of that fear, he says, all right, we're going to put this iron grip on Israel, I'm going to deal harshly with them. Now, uh, in some sense, the, the funny thing or the irony in it is look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So, the very th- we'll, we'll cover this more in a moment, but we'll come back to it. But regardless, at, at this point, the more and more he tried to have his grip on Israel, the more and more the thing that, the thing that he feared happened, right? He feared them growing exceedingly strong. The more he oppressed, the more they grew. That's God's blessing and providence on Israel, and that's him fulfilling his promise in there. But we keep moving uh, through the text. Um, Look at uh, verse 12, the, the second half, where it says, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the fear starts in Pharaoh's heart. He brings in his advisors and sends it out. And now we're to the point where now Egypt as a whole, the people of Egypt, also share in this same fear. It's, it's being matched by Pharaoh. So now they are being brought into the fold. It's, it's spreading. It's pervasive. It's moving throughout the land, throughout the peoples, that they are in fear of, of Israel, of the people, this, this nation that's uh, coming about. And in this text, this is the first time uh, in verse, back in verse 7, but again, this is all together, uh, was the first time that Israel was, um, was named a nation. It was the first time they were actually called a, a true people, uh, was here in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture. And, and as we see throughout Exodus, as we're going to see throughout Exodus, it is God calling his people to himself. He's going to call them out of slavery and into himself, right? He's, going, he's making a covenant people. And this is the people that Pharaoh fears, and he's inciting that fear in the rest of the Egyptians. And so verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Again, we see it elevated. It's now taking another step forward. It's getting tighter. The grip is strengthening. The fear is growing. And he is trying to restrain the growth of Israel. The sin is continuing to spread. It's getting worse. And now it turns Deadly. Look at verse uh, 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, when enslavement doesn't work, try genocide. Right? That's the approach the Pharaoh took. When enslavement doesn't work to accomplish your evil desire, try genocide. So the enslavement and dealing and oppressing them in that way didn't work, right? It didn't stop the growth. We saw in verse 12 where they actually grew more uh, during that time. So his next step is, okay, this isn't working, so what's the next step? Well, let's kill the babies. Let's kill the sons. If we're afraid that they're going to be war fighters and take us out, you kill the sons. So that was his command to these uh, midwives. Again, the sin continues to grow. His heart continues to get hard, which we're going to see throughout... Exodus. It is not going to stop in our text here in chapter 1. That is going to continue for uh, quite a while, uh, Pharaoh's heart being hardened, which we'll deal with uh, later when uh, it comes up more clearly in in our text. Uh, But notice uh, the names in verse 15. The Hebrew wives' names are mentioned, Shiphrah and Puah, but there is no name for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not a specific name for a person. It's more of a great house. It's more of like saying the White House, uh, so to speak. So there's different people that fill that role, but there's not a particular person. So this Pharaoh, whoever it was, wanted his name to be known. They had these uh, cities built uh, with an enslaved people. He wanted everyone in the land to know that he is this great power. Yet, what is his name? No one knows. And you can go through and look at commentators and, and historians and others who have tried to identify the exact year and which pharaoh and different things and match up all this historical stuff. No one knows. There is no way to tell for sure with um, confidence uh, of who it is or speculation and that's it. So you see, the names of these midwives matter. They, I mean, it's 2022. This was in... This was 4,000 years ago or so-ish, give or take some years, right? This was a long time ago, and we still have their names. So righteousness will survive, lies, deceit, and sin will not, right? This, this is an important distinction uh, for us to remember. And another one is when sin goes unchecked, it spreads like wildfire, right? If, if we don't have a check on our sins, if we're not actively fighting our sins, they're going to continue to grow and grow and grow and get worse, they're not going to get better, and they're not going to stay tame either. We see this just in this one passage. And, and, and it gets even worse, because at the end, it says in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, You shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, it's the same, essentially, it's the same command. You're still ordering uh, the, the killing of sons. But now look where, how it's expanded. Now it's not saying midwives, you're going to do it on the stool. Now it's saying... Pharaoh commanded all his people. Now he's bringing in the Egyptian people to take part in this genocide. You see how this continues to spread, it continues to get worse, it continues to become even more deadly in this regard. It doesn't stop there. Now, some of you may be thinking, like, hey, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not committing genocide, you know, I'm not enslaving anyone, uh, I just am living in America, freedom, right? Like, we're having a great time. So, which is, is true, right? We're not doing that. Hope not. You should be going to jail. Give me uh, judgment if you are. But, right, we're still enslaved to sin. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. And even those of us who have been saved from the power of sin, we're still in the presence of sin, right? So this, the presence of sin still remains in this life. It is not yet gone. One day that will be the case, which we look forward to and are confident in as Christians, that this, is, this life isn't, is it's not the end. There is something far greater that we can look forward to coming if we are in Christ. This isn't the end for us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's pretty strong language. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, we don't have lions here. We live in Georgia, right? I mean, there might be one at the zoo or something. Um, but they are, if you've ever read about them or watched one of their documentaries or whatever, they're pretty powerful creatures, right? That You don't really want to mess with them. They're really strong. They're really fast. They hunt very well. And they're kind of pretty dominant in Africa, right, which is their native land there, uh, you don't want to mess with them. So this is saying your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. That's pretty, it's pretty serious, right? Well, we, can't, we can't play around with our sins. It's going to spread. Again, we may not be committing genocide or enslavement, but we're going to commit plenty of other transgressions against our holy God, which he takes very seriously. 1 Peter 2.9, we're again quoting Peter, uh, Peter once again. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. For all of us who are in Christ, we belong to the Lord. He is our He is our good, loving Father who we want to obey, we want to honor with our lives, we want to love in our actions, in our obedience, in our faithfulness. And that's the that's we should live in light of that truth, right? We should live in light of the truth of the gospel in light of the redemption that we have received in Christ as we go along. We were not enslaved in the way that Israel was enslaved, but we were all once enslaved to sin. One reminder, so that was the one question tying into the need for redemption. One reminder for us. In the midst of suffering, God is at work. In the midst of suffering, God is at work. And I'm sure many of you have examples of this, but have you ever been in a season of life, maybe it's one recently, maybe it's been a while, uh, where it was gloomy, it was dark, it was sad, maybe it was loss of life, it was was death, or something like that, that happened uh, in in some ways. So Israel was enslaved for 400 years, right? That's what was prophesied uh, in Genesis 15, which we'll read in a moment. For 400 years, they would be inflicted in a land that was not their own. Yet... Notice the blessing that God provided throughout this text, that the constant, I mean, even in verse 7 as well, and then it continues in, into our text this morning, the the continual blessing of children that, that occurred, the, the rapid expansion of the nation of Israel through procreation is pretty profound. I mean... Oh, Stephen talked about this, I think it was last week when, when he mentioned it, but I think it was around somewhere around estimates, 2.4 million people left Egypt in the Exodus. 2.4, roughly. Could be more, could be a tad less, but probably not. 2.4. 600,000 men is what we know for a fact, based on the scriptures, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. 600,000 men, and you do the math, uh, and you get to 2.4 million as an estimate. That's a lot of people. I mean, that's a whole lot of people. 70 went in. 70. 400 years, I mean, that's... They were, getting, they, were, they were getting after it, right? And God was blessing them <laughs> in that way. And that they should, as they should. They did it in the right way, and it was good. God blessed them for their faithfulness in fulfilling Genesis 1 in that regard. But let's read Genesis 15, though, and, and, and get our eyes on this. Remember, the, the point here is in the midst of suffering, God is at work. So in Genesis 15, 13, I think it's on the screen, it says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Even in their suffering and in their enslavement, and even in the deaths that they, um, that they received, however many it was at the hands of Pharaoh and his people, God was still at work. Even in that, he was at work. He, he told Abraham 400 plus years prior that this would happen. And it did. He fulfilled his promise. And there's a purpose for it that we covered then and we don't have to, time to go into now. Uh, there is. You can go read the excuse me the rest of the text and cover that, but that's outside of the scope. Regardless, even in that, even in the suffering, God was fulfilling promises. And he was fulfilling promises into making uh, Abraham's offspring into a great nation. He told them, "Your your, your offspring are going to be numerous as the stars." He also said, "Can you count the sand? Because your offspring is going to be numerous as the sand." Have you ever tried to count sand? That'd be horrible. There's so many, you know, and just a handful, let alone the whole one beach, you know, like it'd be crazy. So, even in that, he's fulfilling it. He's fulfilling all these promises. Yet at the same time, they're experiencing intense suffering the likes of which I don't think anyone in this room could even imagine, including myself. I have no idea what this would look like. This would be horrible. We live in America. Freedom, right? What I mentioned earlier. Now, we have our issues, but this isn't happening, right? So, regardless, as we, as we come through this, even in the suffering that took place in this event, in this part of history, God was still fulfilling His promises, and God was still giving them a blessing of children throughout, Throughout the verse 12, right? Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, so the more suffering, the more oppression that Pharaoh and his people implemented onto them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And then in verse 20, so we'll deal with the midwives if you're wanting to, we'll get there in a second. Verse 20 though says, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Earlier it said they grew strong, now it's saying they grew very strong. It's taken it up another notch. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That was another blessing that he gave to them, that families and children were growing. Now, it's just more of a side note, sort of. The abortion issue is a big issue in our country, right? It's a very big issue. The killing of the unborn, the killing of the innocent uh, babies, uh, in that regard, is horrendous. This was also horrendous. The, the, and I bring it up to say the killing of children has, and the, I should say the murder of children, has been pervasive for, for thousands of years. I mean, this isn't, the abortion issue we're experiencing now is not new. It's, it's the same evil and the same sins that have taken place for thousands of years. It comes in different forms. You know, now you have more technology where you can do it before the baby's born, but it still happened. It happened in Jesus' day. It happened in the Roman world before, uh, before uh, it switched over and then the church kind of took over in some degree in the fourth century. Before that happened, this was very pervasive. They, they would have babies and they didn't want to th- They would just leave them on the street and they would die. So this isn't new, it's the same sin in a different form again. But say I like to say, as Christians and as uh, the Old Testament saints prior to Christ coming, we've always had this high view of children. That, that's, that much is clear. Throughout the scriptures, there is a high view of children. Starting in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right, because we're we're in having children, we're making more image bearers of God to go out and to glorify Him in all things. It is a God glorifying thing to have children. It's a God glorifying thing to foster children. It's a God glorifying thing to adopt children. It's a God glorifying thing to just have a high view of children. Period. And we should all do that. And as Christians who hold to the Word of God, that should be first and foremost, regardless of what season of life we're in. We're all in different seasons of life. We're all different ages. We all have different health situations. But the, the big idea is having a high view of children in, in various ways. And it is a blessing from the Lord. That much also is clear throughout Scripture in this text and elsewhere, that it is a blessing that we should be thankful to God for. So i say all that to say, even in the midst of suffering, God is at work. We may not always see it. We may not always know what's happening. It may be dark. You may be experiencing very tragic things in life. And you may not be able to see his hand at the moment. It may be very difficult to see God's hand. But he is at work. He's not alone. He's not going to leave you. He is a loving father. Even in the midst of what's happening with my grandpa, right? I have to continually remind myself God is good. I trust him. I don't know all the reason why it's happening right now, but it is. So I continually have to go back to the word even in this. To remind myself, God is good and He is sovereign over all things and He is faithful, even when I am not. Even in the midst of suffering, God is at work. All right, one exhortation and then we're going to be done. One exhortation. I probably had more already, but as a heading, one exhortation. We must fear God and stand fast to the word in the face of opposition. We must fear God and stand fast to the word in the face of opposition. Let's read again verses 15 to 19. We're going to look at the midwives, so if you're wanting to see what was going on with them, we're going to cover them more in depth here. So let's read their um, situation one more time. Starting in verse 15, it says this, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but every, son, every daughter shall live. All right. So the midwives. They have a pre- we already mentioned their names are recorded for us. The name of Pharaoh is not. Uh, we learned some more there. It seems that uh, these two uh, women, these two midwives that are mentioned, most likely are uh, the two leaders of the other midwives. It would be highly unlikely for only for israel to only have two when there was over well over a million people uh happening you know living there so it's likely they were uh the leaders there although it's we don't know for sure that's just it is what it is uh but that seems to be the most likely case uh, of what they were doing and so notice the response though we're going to get into what they did here in a moment but notice uh their response or the the response that's given in verse 17 uh, of what happened. So, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the children live. They feared God. Now, that's not always talked about a ton, that the idea that we should fear the Lord, uh, but it's, uh, it's prevalent throughout Scripture that that is, that is very much the case. And it is the case here. They feared God rather than man and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. They were given a command by their leader. They didn't want him to be their leader, but he was, and they didn't obey it. They disobeyed the order and followed Christ, or followed God, followed Christ, followed God in that way. It was faithful and obedient because they feared God. They feared God more than they feared man. But look at their response. So what did they do? So, so they, they feared the Lord, but they let the children live, and then they, they get called in the office, right? They get called in the principal's office, so to speak right there seems to be there's there's most likely uh, several years or some amount of time that passed in between the order given and them coming back in to give an account because there would have to be some sort of time to pass to see okay are they actually fulfilling the order that was given if that makes sense so it seems most likely that maybe a few years passed um, most likely what happened is people. Uh, well at worked for Pharaoh saw some sons coming around they were no longer able to hide the sons anymore they were very clearly sons and running around and he got, they got called back in so some time has now passed they came in and he's like what in the world's going on so they said uh, in response to this verse 19 they said the midwife said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them okay the, it's interesting reading the uh, some of these commentaries, who are uh, commentators who are given their um, their interpretation of the Hebrew in this text. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but from what they were given their raw interpretation of what the Hebrew says, it was very interesting seeing the uh, the interpretations they gave, they they were given because apparently the way it's written is very difficult to translate. But some of the things they were saying is that the women were animals, so okay, there's some other things that were said that I I've thought about putting on the screen, but I'm not going to. We're going to leave it at that. It was very interesting to read, um, to see what was going on. And the, the, the kind of overarching question here is, okay, they, they said this. Now, is it, you know, is, is that really what happened? I mean, is that really the case? Or are they just kind of making a ploy, you know, to Pharaoh? What was really going on? We don't know for certain, but we do know in verse 17 at the end, it says, but they let the male children live. They didn't obey the command. They feared God. They let the male children live. So what they're saying about the, the, the Hebrew women may be true. But at the end of the day, they clearly did, They let the male children live. So they were present. They were there. They didn't obey Pharaoh's commands. They let the male children live. So the, the kind of moral question here is, well, did they lie? Did they sin in saying this? It, it doesn't really seem like this is what happened. It says that they let them live. And then they gave this account in front of Pharaoh, which brings us to this, uh, to this question. There's been good, good, strong Christians that have said they, had, they did sin, John Calvin being one of them. Have you ever read John Calvin? He's kind of the, you know, high up there in the, the ranking of theologians to some degree. Uh, he believed they did sin. Um, I disagree with Calvin's assessment, along with plenty of other um, Christians. I do not think they they sinned in this regard. Uh, for a couple reasons. One, what what do the Ten Commandments say? Does want to recite them? All ten? What is the one? It's okay, you don't have to. Uh, Thy shall not lie doesn't exist. Right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say thou shall not lie, or you shall not lie, or it says you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor." That's the language. Now, a lot of times, I mean, even in my own head, I have to remind myself of that because in my head, I think it says, I shall not lie, but it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It says, you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. And the idea there behind that, to some degree, is with the intent to harm. Because in that day, the way the legal system worked is you had, it relied on eyewitness accounts. There was no cameras. There was no hot mics. There was no phones. There was was nothing. You, You... you either saw it or you didn't. That was kind of it. So your, your account, your witness, what you say in that court in front, of, in front of the public mattered because you could easily get some people together, make up something, bear a false witness against someone else and wrongly condemn them for something they didn't even do. And there's nothing you could really do about, do about it in that regard. So you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. Now, if we unpack that, and we unpack some of the other Ten Commandments that are listed, one being you shall not commit adultery, right, which is clear. You can't commit adultery. That is having sexual relations with someone who is not your wife or or husband if you're um, the opposite sex. But sex itself is a good thing. It's God-glorifying, right? It's a God-glorifying thing under the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. But adultery is sin. It's heinous sin. Fornication is sin, very much so. Does that make sense? So everything throughout the Ten Commandments in this regard, or at least the last several, uh, all have, are all the extremes of a particular sin or set of sins that make them clear. In this particular case, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, they didn't bear false witness against their neighbor. They didn't have an intent to harm. They were not merely out of self-preservation. They were doing it to protect lives. Not only their own, they did, they did live. God blessed them with children. But not only that, it is likely that some time had passed before Pharaoh gave the order for his whole people to start killing babies. And we see God gave them their blessing. There's, there's no indication in the text that they sinned. And then not only that, but in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So as we kind of wrap that up, there, there is a place for non-truth-telling. Rahab is another example, probably the prime example of this in Joshua chapter 2. But regardless, as Christians, the truth should be, we should be known by truth, right? That should be the standard. There are exceptions in this regard that happen, but we should be known for the truth and, 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 In all other areas, um, that should be a mark that we have. So back to the fear of the Lord. Now that we did that aside, back to the fear of the Lord. It said they feared God and they let the children live. So what is the fear of the Lord? What does that look like? There's a quote by Kevin DeYoung that should be on the screen behind me that says this. I think think it's pretty helpful. What does it mean to fear God? It means that you have honesty and integrity because you know that God is watching. Even, Even if nobody else is. It means that you believe there is a God. And that he is very interested in what you do. When we fear God, the presence and the purposes of God weigh on us more than the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think that was a pretty helpful uh, quote there, right? That Especially there at the end. When we fear God, the presence and the purposes of God weigh on us more than the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, just put your, try to put yourself in their shoes. They're before Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man in the land. He's given them an order to kill babies. They disobeyed it, rightfully, came back. He's like, what are you doing? What happened? What they say, they're, he could have killed them right there. He could have brought in all the midwives, however many there were, and cut their heads off. He could have done whatever he wanted. So when we take that, hopefully we don't come to that. Hopefully we don't have that situation. But if we do, what are we going to do? And even if we don't, in our normal, in our lives here in America, we're going to be faced with decisions, moral decisions. People are going to look at you and ask you to do things that are sinful and wrong. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are we going to do when that happens? Are we going to fear God and walk faithfully to the word and stand fast to it? Or are we going to crumble at the weight of man, the world, the flesh, or the devil? That's, that's the looming question. They pass the test. We're going to have plenty of tests coming. Many of you, I'm sure, can come with plenty of examples. You've already been in a situation like this where you've had to make a decision. Are you going to fear God or are you going to fear man? We have a, a, a pretty prime example of somebody in this church who is regularly faced. So she is in a program at UNG. It's a small program. There's about 24 people or so in it and there are two transgender students in that 20, group of 24 when they're together all the time. And so she is regularly faced with two people asking the whole group to you know, refer to them using pronouns that don't agree with their sex assigned at birth. And not only that, but even when they're not around and at times when she's had to, they were doing a project had to talk about these two individuals or one or the other, She's been corrected for using the proper pronouns that we would say based on their sex assigned at birth. She's been corrected in front of the group for not conforming to something that very clearly defies nature, very clearly defies the way God created humanity and created us to be. So it's right here. There's plenty of other examples other than the LGBTQ array of of issues. But regardless, those in particular are going to continually be in front of us. Many of you may have examples like that or others similar. If you don't, you probably will pretty soon because it's everywhere. And there's other things as well. It's not just that. That's just one example. But regardless, the big idea there is when we are faced with a decision, we must decide what we're going to do and we're going to be accountable to it. God is watching. God does care what we do. We are called to glorify him in all things. That is our purpose in life, is to bring him Glory and to love him and desire him in all things as we go about doing that. So when we are faced with decisions, what are we going to do? Are we going to fear God or fear man? Because it's very real pressure, right? Who who can come up with an example in your head right now where you've had to make some kind of decision, not maybe like this, but some decision in that moment, one way or another, raise your hand. Okay, so pretty much everybody in the room, right? There's going to be more coming and it's going to get more and more intense. So, we must stay grounded in the Word. We must continually stay grounded in the Word. We need to know what it says, right? If we're going to make these decisions and glorify God, we need to know what it says. And then we need to walk faithfully in it. All right, so as we conclude, we were all once enslaved to sin and in need of redemption. right, that's the reminder. Israel was in need of redemption here. They were enslaved. They were afflicted. They were were murdered. They needed God. They needed a Savior. They needed God's help and God is going to provide it. And we're going to continue walking through this book and we're going to see that unfold and that happen and God make those provisions. We all once needed that. For all of us who are in Christ needed that and we still need it as we are being sanctified. We don't kill our sin. We don't become more and more like Christ by our own effort or strong-willed abilities. It's only through and only because of the blood of the Lamb that we are able to kill sin and continue to seek the glory of God in all things that we do. So, as we wrap it up, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Christ, I urge you to lay down your life at the foot of the cross. That the Son of God came, that He died, He lived the perfect sinless life, and He was resurrected on the third day to atone for our sins. And that as believers, we need to be reminded of that continually as well. So, that being said, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we had to read in your word. Father, thank you for this time that as we enter a time of communion, as we enter a time of breaking the bread that represents Christ's flesh that was on the cross and the blood that was spilled, that we take this in remembrance of him and all that he did. We take this in remembrance of the gospel. We take it as a church family. Help us, Lord, to remember and be reminded of our need of redemption. Even for all of us who are in Christ, we still need need you and your Spirit to continue to work in us, to continue to sanctify us, to continue to mold us into the image of your Son. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to go out faithfully as we go out from here. Help us to fear you and have a healthy fear of God. Help us, Lord, to love you more. I pray, Lord, that you will stir our affections for you, that we will know you and love you more and more each day, that we will continue to read in your word, and that we will just grow more and more faithful to you. Father, I do pray as we enter this time of communion that you would move in and through us as we reflect on our life, that we reflect on our sins and repent of them, and as we are humbly reminded of all that Christ has done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.